Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, this stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. My wife is uh, the kind of person who writes a lot of things down. Um, lists for me to do things, you know, I need the reminder. But no, other things she does, she journals a lot. And uh, when we were uh, younger and we lived in California, she would write to our family, uh, both sides of the family. Back then, you didn't send email. You actually sent letters, you know, that had a postage mark on the outside of it. She would send it to one location and uh, make multiple copies so the family could read it. I don't know who delivered them once they arrived, but I was looking at some of those letters this week, and um, I was actually looking at them for a particular reason. Not to remember uh, what we were like. Um, that part of it was a little embarrassing, so that's why I'm not reading any of the letters. Uh, but but to, to read the letter, and I was reading the letter and asking myself this question. If I was reading this letter for the first time, and I didn't know who the people were in the letter, what would I be thinking of it? I would have a lot of questions. I, I would have a question about where these people were writing from and where the people were who received the letter. I would continue to read the letter to try to find out things about, well, the subject is Bob and Brenda. But you know, I wouldn't really understand the letter thoroughly unless I happened to know Bob and Brenda. Bob's parents, Bob and Joanne. Brenda's parents, Sam and Pat, and the extended family, and their culture. Then I would understand the letter better. Sometimes we look at the Bible, and we take passages of Scripture, and we use them like little wisdom sayings, right? Standalone wisdom sayings. And that can be good and proper. 
But on the other hand, if we are to understand those so-called wisdom sayings of the Scripture, it's probably helpful for us to know the recipients and the one who delivered the letters in the case of an epistle. We're in a series concerning the nature of the church. And this week, the image that we use to consider the nature of the church is priesthood. And I want to give you a little bit of a background about what these people heard and who these people were in order to understand the words that Peter delivers to them. The first thing that would be helpful to know about these people is that they were a marginalized people. They were an extreme minority. It's likely that they were disenfranchised in lots of ways, but one of the ways they were likely disenfranchised was economics and status. It appears if you read the letter carefully, Peter's referring to a group of people who were outsiders, not just because of their belief, but they were outsiders because they weren't power players. They had no influence. They were a part of the diaspora, as it's often called. They were a tiny religious community, and they worshipped a risen Savior called Jesus Christ, and most people called them a religious sect. So in light of who those people were, what were the images like for them? When Peter wrote to them and he said, you are a royal priesthood, what did they have in mind? What did it mean to them? Well, first, these people, for whatever reason, they probably were Gentiles, most of them, but for whatever reason, they'd come into the Christian faith, and if you came into the Christian faith in the first century, it was impossible not to understand the historical background that we now call the Old Testament. You say, why? Well, because that's all there was. The New Testament was being written. They didn't look at Peter's epistle, a letter written on parchment to them, and say, oh, the holy book. It was a letter from Peter. Later on, we make it a part of the New Testament canon. But for them, when they think of the Scriptures, they're thinking of the Old Testament. So when Peter talks about a royal priesthood, a holy nation, they have images in mind. They know what he's talking about. As a matter of fact, he's talking about a covenant people, the nation of Israel. A covenant people that were chosen for a unique, special purpose. They were chosen for the purpose. Whatever you think of chosenness as it relates to Israel, this was the primary reason God chose them. God chose the nation of Israel so that he might proclaim his love and redemption to the whole world through Jesus Christ. Now, it's quite clear that a lot of the people in the nation of Israel who thought themselves chosen didn't see that as their role. But that was God's role for the nation. Their identity was to be a blessing to the whole world. Think of Abraham. At least on one occasion, really more than one occasion, God said to his people, you know what, you're not really special. You're only special because I chose you. One of those epic moments, God spoke to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 7. Chapter 7 and verse 7. And he said, in effect, I didn't choose you because you were great. 
I didn't choose you because you were mighty. I chose you because you were small and insignificant. I chose you because no one would believe that out of this vagabond group of people, the whole world could be blessed. That's why I chose you. May I give you a commentary on that, which Paul and other epistles would give you? Don't get puffed up. You're not chosen because you're good. You're not chosen because you're righteous. You're not chosen because you stand out among all the other people. You're chosen because nobody thinks that God could actually reveal himself through you. That's why I chose you. They would have understood that background. You know something else that's interesting about the prophecies of the Old Testament um, that we uh, find just buried in prophetic books is this idea, without using the name of Jesus, that the Messiah was going to come through these people, these chosen people, and the whole world would be affected by it. So if you were a first century Jew, you would have thought that the place to worship God was in the temple at Jerusalem. And that became a very entrenched and, I think, inaccurate image of where God was. Of course, God was specially at the temple with his people, but God was in the whole earth calling people to himself. So on one occasion, Isaiah put it in these words. He said, I want to tell you there's a day coming. It's not yet, but there's a day coming. And in that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt, and the Egyptians to Assyria. And the Egyptians and the Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be third. Third. Along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people. Blessed be Assyria, my handiwork. Blessed be Israel, my inheritance. You know what the first century church saw in that prophecy? They saw Jesus Christ for all the nations. Do you know what we see today? We see the church in Syria. We see the church in Egypt. We see the church in every part of the world. You see, this passage wasn't just about Middle East geography. It wasn't about Assyria and Egypt and Israel. It was only an image to help you understand what Jesus Christ was going to do for the whole world. Through Jesus Christ, the whole world is welcomed into worship together under the Lordship of Christ himself. Now, I say all that, and I wonder to myself, did they understand all of that? The first recipients of the epistle that Peter wrote, I think they were beginning to understand it. And I think they certainly understood the Old Testament images better than we do. In effect, Peter was saying to them, consider the nation of Israel. They were not even a people until God chose them. 
When God chose them, they became a people. Now transition to these first century Christians who are a minority culture. What does that mean for them? It means this. Friends. Friends in this Christian community. Peter says, I want to remind you of something. You were once not even a people. You know what you were? You were actually outsiders. As Gentiles. That's a, um, an artist's rendition of Solomon's temple. I want you to notice how grand it is. I'm going to walk over here and point to some things. In the center is, is the major part of the temple itself. Where the sacrifices were, where the worship went on. All the way to the back is the Holy of Holies where only the high priest would enter. Part of the outer court there in the, the center and to the right and to the left was the court of the women, the court of the men. But you know where the court of the Gentiles was? Can't even see my little thing, can you? It's right there. See that, that opening right there? This was the court of the Gentiles. And this, and this. They couldn't even enter in proper to the temple. So Peter is speaking to a group of people in the diaspora who are probably Gentile Christians. And he says, you were once not even a people. But now you've become a people. I know most of you can't read that. It's in Greek. But I'll tell you where it was. See the entrance over there? It was right outside that wall. And you know what it says? Any Gentile who passes through this gate, passes through this gate at the risk of death. They couldn't even go in. Once you weren't even a people, says Peter. But now because of Jesus Christ, everything concerning the love of God is open to you. Once you had not experienced mercy, but now you have. Once you were a marginalized people, but now you're a special people. A special people chosen to bless the earth. He uses words like chosen, living stones, a spiritual house. But the one I wish to focus on is the priesthood. Because the image of the priesthood expresses it best. The image of the priesthood is beautiful. You know what the image of the priesthood is? They would have known this. You didn't choose to be a priest. You were born into the tribe of Levi. And the priesthood chose you. Um, some of you, if you're interested in these kinds of things, were uh, watching the last royal wedding in England. 
for whatever reason, people all over the world watch that. Um, I mean, I'm not, that's not a criticism. That's kind of snarky, isn't it? I'm sorry. Um, it was on at our house. I didn't turn it on, but it was on at our house. <laughs> over and over and over again, I kept walking into a room and saying, I just saw this a few minutes ago. But, but there's something fascinating, isn't there, about a royal family, about all the aura around it. And it, it, is, it is beautiful in its pageantry. And sometimes you would see the little children and the royal family. You know, William and Kate and little Prince George. Little Prince George isn't too old yet. I saw a picture of him today going to his first day of school with Prince William and the principal or the teacher shaking his hand. I think he probably had a welcome that other kids did not. And it's possible that little Prince George could actually have a notion that he was special. That he was better than everybody else and that everybody else in the world should serve him. But I can tell you this, if Prince George had that attitude in the presence of his grandmother, Queen Elizabeth, he would be corrected. If you know anything about Elizabeth, she's a devoted follower of Jesus Christ, and she sees her role as exalted as it is, and different than everybody else, and special as it is, she sees her role as a servant of the people. Now, maybe it doesn't look that way sometimes. But that's how she sees her role. I read her Christmas message that she writes every year. And unless she was telling falsehoods, that was it. I am a servant of Jesus Christ and a servant of the people. So before these people would rush into a notion of being royal and special and everybody serving them, it's likely they would have in mind the image that Peter knew so well. That the great high priest, Jesus Christ, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So you are a royal priesthood, says Peter. And what does that mean? It means to be a royal servant. It means to be out ahead of the line, serving as fast as you can. To get the acclaim of others? No. To emphasize the love of God in Christ. What did a priest do? What did a priest do? They would have known it well. Um, we don't use the word priest very much among Protestants. I don't see myself in a priestly role. But if I were the priest in the nation of Israel, I would be dressed up in all kinds of regalia. And you would be behind me. And I would turn my back to you and raise my hands and intercede for the people.
That's what a priest does. He stands at the altar of God on behalf of the people. It's almost like his life is not his own. His life is God's. And his life is the people's. So you say to yourself, um, oh, that's interesting history, Bob. What does it mean for us? Well, I think the first us, we exist as a royal priesthood to serve others. That's what we ought to be reminded of as the church of Jesus Christ. One person has said the church is the only human institution that exists exclusively for the benefit of its non-members. Do you like that? The only human institution that exists exclusively for the benefit of its non-members. Of course, that doesn't mean we don't serve each other. But it means our primary calling, our mission in life, is to serve others. Not just here, but especially outside the church. If we exist here as an insular community, encouraging one another in our faith, we've done one good thing, but we have not embraced our mission. Our mission is to be for the world. And what does that mean? Actually, I like the, the Latin word for priest. You know what the Latin word for priest comes from? Bridge builder. Bridge builder. You and I, as the people of God, are bridge builders between the world and Jesus Christ. That's our mission in this world. Not to ask the world to conform, conform to our culture. Not to demand that the world be like us. But to bridge a bill, build a bridge between Jesus Christ and the world that does not know him. So that those who do not know him can cross the bridge and embrace him. We exist to serve others. The second thing it means, at least, is that we're actually not individuals. Now that should um, catch your attention because about 98% of you here are Americans. There's very few things that are more characteristic of an American culture than individualism. And there's nothing individualistic about the Christian faith. Not at all. You say you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Fine, well and good, I'm glad you do. But that's not what it's really all about. What it's all about is to have that relationship with Jesus Christ and enter into community with the people of God so that you can serve the world. That's your mission. Not just you and your Jesus and you and your Bible. It's about community. It's about being shaped in community. 
so that you can proclaim the riches of God's grace to the world. Oh, by the way, speaking of the ancient world and the first century listeners, hearers of this first read epistle from Peter, they could have stumbled on a lot of different things, but they wouldn't have stumbled on this. Because first century Christians and ancient people in large part were not individualists. It could be overextended. It could be overemphasized as if they had no individuality. We don't want to go to that extreme. But here's the reality. They saw themselves as the son of somebody else, as the daughter of another. And then the next phrase they would use, from the tribe of, from the clan of, from the nation of. Their identity was inseparably linked with others. They weren't individuals the way we think of ourselves today. So the challenge for 21st century Christians is that we need to stop thinking individualistically about our faith and about our identity. We are united in Christ with others for a mission to the world. I, I love William Barclay. He's a commentator, an English commentator, actually um, passed away, but he's um, wonderful. Don't agree with everything, but he has these pithy little statements sometimes. And the one I ran across this week is, a man's greatness lies not in himself, but in what he's been given to do. Isn't that rich? Where's your identity? In yourself? Wow. There's a word for that. It's called narcissism. Your identity ought to be in what you've been given to do. And as a Christian, you've been given the job to proclaim the love of God to the world. The third thing I think this passage reminds us of in the 21st century is that, well, we're just different. If you read on in this passage further than what we read, you'll hear admonitions from Peter about godly living. You'll hear statements more than once in this epistle about how they're aliens, about how they're different, about how they're marked. And you're supposed to live out your difference. You don't hide your difference or apologize for your difference. You live it out because that is your identity in this world. And you know what? It makes you different. And sometimes, as Peter notes in here, you suffer because of it. You will run into persecution because of it. Just like Jesus, you will be persecuted for doing what is right. That's part of your identity. You're different, says Peter. I like, I've mentioned it multiple times, I love the King James Version at this point. Peter says there, you are a peculiar people. You're really kind of odd. So live that way. What does this mean? I mean, we could explore this for a long time, but just let me say this about at least one thing concerning its meaning. If you're a Christ follower, you are not to be held captive. To be held captive 
chained by the flesh. Now, that doesn't mean, that's a scripture uh, reference, that doesn't mean the skin, right? It could mean the skin, but that's not all it means. It means stuff. It means don't be chained by the material reality of everything you see around you. Don't allow yourself to always constantly be gratifying the flesh. Don't always rush after money like it's a God. Don't bow down to things. That's idolatry. I want you to be a different kind of people. I want you to be stewards of the great gifts that God has given you. Let me put it this way. I want you people who are Christians to see your home as a hostel. I want you to view every part of your life through the lens of service. I want you to look above the material and see the eternal reality. Or to put it very specifically, in the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians. I, before I read this, it reminds me of something. Camp's going on right now. Prio and then Campo. And um, my dear friend Rick Maxson, who is done camp for so many years, and now David has stepped in to that role, his son. He would always, uh, at the very, near, near the very end of camp, he would, he would ask the counselors, who are the high school he would ask them to share their favorite verse, Bible verse, with all the little kids who had been following him all week. And he thought that was very important because it set an example for these children concerning what was important. And I, I've been there for a few occasions when these have been shared. And one of them that I love the most, um, for a variety of reasons, is this one that was shared. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So where's your vision, my friends? As a Christ follower, it's above the things themselves. Or, to use another image, it's through the things themselves in order to see eternity. It makes you different. The final thing I think is true about this passage is that it reminds us that we are all priests. This is an important theme of the Protestant Reformation. It was a revolutionary theme. Not as though it did not exist. It exists in Scripture. But it became revolutionary for the church. That there wasn't just a priest or priests. That everybody who was a part of the body of Christ was a priest to another. A priest to someone one who intercedes on behalf of another. 
So let me conclude um, by emphasizing that point with a story. When I was married in 1981, a long time ago, my father and my father-in-law officiated the wedding. That was pretty heavy-handed, you know, looking at your dad and your father-in-law. And I remember um, the little homily that my dad gave. The homily that my dad gave me, and it was pretty much directed to me. (laughs) I knew where it was coming from, and I knew the point. And the point was this. Bob, make the Bible the center of your home. Don't let culture dictate for you and your family how to live. Constantly refer to the Scriptures, the Word of God, the rule of faith. In 1998, I came to be the pastor here. And at my installation service, um, they allowed my father to preach the sermon. And he got up to preach the sermon. And again, he spoke to me. And he said to me, son, This will be your church. Serve it well. Be its pastor. But don't forget this, son. Your first church is your family. Shepherd your family well. And shepherd the church of God. I took it to heart. I've not been the greatest shepherd of this church or my family, but I've taken it seriously. So let me be very direct and gender specific just for a moment. Fathers, be the high priest to your family. I'm not diminishing the role of the mother. I'm not saying anything about inequality. You know me better than that. What I am saying is this. It is your chief responsibility to stand before God on behalf of your family. You don't have a more important task. It's not about how much money you can make. It's not about positioning your kids so they will have as great a future as they can have. Those things are important. The most important thing for a Christian father is to be the high priest of his family. Stand before God on behalf of them. Now for those of you who want to jump to a conclusion that's not sexist or anything of the sort, I I ask you, have you ever heard a woman of faith say to her husband, would you stop being like Jesus so much? Right? Will you stop standing before God for me and to kill the children? Of course not. 
What does it mean to be the high priest of your family? It means to be the chief servant. It means to put their needs before yours. It means to intercede on behalf of your family. It means to be out front in trying to understand what the Word of God says concerning how we ought to live. That's your job. So, um, that's all i got to say about that. we got a lot of young people in here. Um, we marry a lot of people around here. And you might be on the verge of that. If you're a young woman, look for that man. If you're a young man, and it's clear the young woman doesn't want that, start looking somewhere else. So what does it mean to be a priest before God? It means to be that for your church. It means to intercede on behalf of the person who's next to you, the person who's in the back row. It means to take seriously the issues that you hear about. It means to pray for them, especially when they annoy you. What does it mean to be a priest before God? As individuals in the church, it means to be a priest in your world. It means to walk into your workplace and see everyone there as a person who needs to see Jesus Christ in you. And when they irritate you, Maybe that's your signal to intercede for them. After all, that's what Jesus does for us. He doesn't intercede for us because we're good or not irritating. He doesn't intercede for us because we're sinless. He intercedes for us because we need Him. We need to be the bridge in our communities to Jesus Christ. I would imagine that everyone who takes this calling seriously feels inadequate to the task. Right? If you don't, you're probably not ready for the calling. If you do feel inadequate to the task, I want you to remember two things. Number one, grace is abundant and free, and God will do what you cannot do. And he will cover a multitude of sins if your heart is right before him. That's the first thing to remember. Second thing to remember is that we are in this to become like Christ. Every opportunity that you have to be a priest before God and every opportunity you have that you fail in is an opportunity to learn and grow in your faith. Don't be discouraged. Because you fall short. Of course you're going to fall short. Be encouraged because grace is there and growth is possible. Be the church. Be the priesthood.
all believers to the world. Let's pray. Lord, you've been gracious to call us. Not only were we just not unworthy of your grace, we certainly were unworthy of standing in the role as priest. But you call us to that. You call us a holy people, a royal priesthood. A group of people who weren't a people until you chose us. So Lord, give us the courage to take up the responsibility. Remind us that grace is abundant and free and covers a multitude of sins. And give us the faith, Lord, to believe that in the work of our role as priests, you are also shaping and growing us into the image of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.